Well, let's go to John chapter number 14 tonight. We're in the fourth part of this series, Close to Jesus in the Upper Room. So we've been going uh, verse by verse through John 13. Now we're at the end of John 14, and then we've still got ahead chapter 15 and chapter 16. So just to, to remind ourselves, the context here is that Jesus is with his disciples in the last hours before the, uh, before the crucifixion. So it's, you know, depending on how you count the days, it's, you know, some people would say it's Wednesday night, Thursday night, depending if Christ was crucified on Friday or Thursday, there's good evidence either way. But either way, it's that evening before the crucifixion, and he's talking about the, some of the things that are most really crucial to what the disciples are going to experience in the, next, in the next few hours and really for the rest of their lives. So we pick it up in chapter number 14 and in verse number um, 15. So I won't, I won't recap everything. You'd have to go back and listen to the previous talks. But if you pick it up in verse 15 of John 14, the scriptures say this. Jesus says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye, shall, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you'd help us to understand your word and make application to our hearts and our lives. We pray that we'd be encouraged by what we read tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you remember, there have been a couple of themes that are going on. We talked quite a bit on Sunday about the fact that Jesus is revealing himself to them. And we saw some, really some bold declarations of his deity and his very nature. So that's one of the things that he's revealing to them. Up until now, Jesus has revealed things to his disciples progressively. And a lot of the time, things have been veiled. Like he doesn't, he didn't just come out and say some things. He's slowly uh, been revealing himself to them. Now, he's kind of opening the door a lot wider right now in these moments. He's making his, himself and his plans for them a lot more clear. But he also just told them that some disturbing news, like he said, one of you is going to betray me. He said, I'm going to leave and you can't come with me. He also said, one of you is going to deny me. And of course, their mindset is, oh, but we love you so much. We love you so much. And he wants to, so he starts out this section by telling them how their love for him would be revealed, how they would display or demonstrate their love for Jesus. And you tell me, I mean, you're looking at the passage. In what way is he telling them that they can display love? Yeah, it's through obedience. He says, 
if you do what I've instructed you, if you follow my teachings, that's the proof of your love for me. Now, he introduces somebody else. Now, you, you, probably, you probably saw this. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you picked up on this. But who is it? Excuse me. Back in action now. So who is it now that he's introduced? Who is it? Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit. And he's referred to in verse number 16 as the comforter. So it says in verse 16, I will pray Father and he shall give you another comforter. So another comforter, that, that implies what? When he says another com comforter, what is, what is the implication here? Yes. So that Jesus up until now, right, Jesus up until now has been the comforter, but there's a, a new comforter coming. So you may know, somebody might know, but when you hear the comforter in reference to the Holy Spirit, what do, you, what do you think of when you think of the comforter? Why is that, that word chosen? Does anybody know about what, what this word actually is? So automatically, what would our mind go to? Let's just go there, like, like the obvious. If you're just looking at that English word, what does your mind go to? Peace. Somebody that, yeah, there's peace there. What else? Counsel. Like counsel. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe like it, when you're sad, somebody comes and comforts you. But it's interesting, the, the Greek word here has a, a much more specific meaning. Now, the, the issue is it's a specific meaning, meaning, but we know it's a broader application for the Holy Spirit. Because the word comforter is the word paraclete, and it was a legal term, okay? And this was the, like a legal counselor, and it literally means the one who stands beside. So if you were to go to the, if you were to go to before court, and you would have, you would have this word here, the comforter, the paraclete, the, the counselor, the one who stands beside you. Now that probably meant a lot to them, because right now, if they found themselves in a difficult situation for the last three years, what would they do? They'd go straight to Jesus, wouldn't you? I mean, you've seen him do miracles. You've seen him answer every question. You've seen all these things. So when they find themselves in, in difficulty, they, there's an advocate. There's a counselor. And all of these words are really kind of tied up in that. There's someone to stand beside, that stand, standing beside them. There's someone to turn to. Now, Jesus is about to leave, and he wants them to know that though I am leaving, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send someone else to stand beside you, the comforter. Now, the difference, though, is this. It's another comforter, and this other comforter in the place of Jesus is actually, in one sense, even better than having Jesus there. And if you look at the verse, you can figure out why. Why is it better to have the new comforter, the Holy Spirit, instead of Jesus Christ. Go ahead. Well, Jesus just told them that he was going to leave unless he involved. But in the verse, he says that he may abide with you forever. Forever. Right. The significance here is that Jesus is God in human form. Jesus has subjected himself to the limitations of humanity. Now, this is important because this is going to come up again later. So we have, we have Father, Son, and Spirit co-equal, one in essence, and who they are. In their essence, they are one, but distinct in their roles, distinct in their place 
in how they relate to us. And so Jesus says that I'm going to give you another comforter in my place, but he is going to be with you forever. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Now, you're going to find that the Holy Spirit is given, and he is going to be the Holy Spirit. He is going to be spoken about both in chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16, because this is new revelation that Jesus is giving. There's new information about the Holy Spirit. So he says that one of the first things we learn about him is he is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Did you notice anything about the tense and the, of the, situ, the, the, uh, the, the questions of time and tense in these verses? What do you notice? So, right, there's a, there's a present situation with the Holy Spirit, and then there's a future. So, and then there's different prepositions, too. So there's different tenses, and there's different prepositions. And some of you are like, prep, what, prep, what, like I don't want to go back to this grammar school. How many remember what a preposition was? Most of you do. So there's different, there's different, and what are those? So you saw the different tenses. One is, one is present, one is future. What's the difference between the, with, the, with the prepositions here? Well, and how is the Spirit relating to the disciples, present and future? Okay, let's look at this. It says in verse number, it says in verse number 17, um, He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. What's the difference there? In the present tense, the Holy Spirit is what? Nobody's going to help me out here. You're going to leave me hanging? All right, I, I don't think it's super complicated. Let's look at it again, okay? It says that he, in the future, or in the present, he lives where? No, in the present, he lives where? with you, but he makes a distinction. In the future, he's going to be what? In you. Those are the prepositions. Right now, he's with you, but in the future, he's going to be in you. Now, so, that, so, so that's a difference, wouldn't you say? To have somebody with you and to have somebody in you. That means up until now, and, and this is a little bit more difficult of a question, but up until now, what is their, what is their experience with the Holy Spirit been like? Up until now, if you're one of the disciples, what has your what is your experience and really for any believers up until this point in history that we're reading about what is their experience with the holy spirit been like how did they experience him any ideas yeah Yeah, I think you're getting ahead to the next, to the, to the, you're putting it all together, which is really good. So just think, though, back up a little bit. Up until what Jesus is teaching them, think if you are, if you are one of the disciples, just go back with me, put yourself in that framework. What kind of things have you personally done for the last three years? 
Okay, what else, Phil? That's, that's true. But don't you remember that the disciples did, did miracles? Right? Themselves? They went and they would go and they would, they would preach in places. Like, Peter and James and John, all these guys, Jesus at one point was like, you're going to go out and you're going to do that, these things. And they started, they, didn't, they never healed anybody before, right? They never performed a miracle before. Oh, that's a, real, that's a really good point. Right. Right, so, so it's almost... It's not that you can physically see or do yourself or have... You, you, you know what I mean? Like, I get what you're saying. To them, I think it's kind of like, what do you mean? Right, I, I don't think they quite understood it at you the moment. What do you mean in us and not with us? Because <coughs> always been with them. So I think you're saying, you're saying tangible, which is right. I think it's, it's also their relationship with the Holy Spirit had been kind of transactional as well. Like, also, like their, their understanding would have been more prescribed from, they would have been dependent on getting that type of, uh, like, versus having the Spirit indwelling in them, their idea of, of a relationship with God would have been much more dependent on the Pharisees and Sadducees and other people directing them towards miracles and things as, as opposed to having an actual indwelling of the Spirit. Sure, like, it's, it's more affected by other people. And... And then also, like that, to put that together, like this whole idea of transactional, it's like, okay, I need some power right now. The Holy Spirit's going to do this. Like, he's here with me. So they had experienced what he's like. But yeah, they don't have any idea what it is to have the personal presence of the Holy Spirit in them. And honestly, sometimes I think even we who are Christians who do have this now, we are living in what Jesus predicted. I don't think we always know what that is either, because I think often we don't listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of us, right? And so, but he's, Jesus is opening a door. Up until now, if you study the Bible, the Holy Spirit was described in the Old Testament as coming upon people, like the Spirit came upon. Even Saul the king, the Holy Spirit came on Saul, and then the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. The Holy Spirit came on David. But this idea of, a per, like Josh said, like this idea of a personal relationship with God and the personal presence of the Holy Spirit, this is all new, this is all brand new territory. This is just being revealed now in the upper room for the first time. In fact, at the end of this discourse in the upper room, Jesus is going to, do you know what Jesus does to, in, there's something about the Holy Spirit that Jesus performs in that room. Does anybody know what happens? He breathes on them. Like there's a scene in there that's not spoken a whole lot about. There's a scene in the upper room where Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Ghost. Some people believe that the disciples received the Spirit then and got the fullness of the Spirit at Pentecost, but that's, that's conjecture. We don't know that definitively, but this is the first time Jesus reveals that the Holy Spirit is going to be in them. So right now, Jesus says, the Spirit is with you, but now in the future, he's going to be in you. Now you pick it up in, oh, where did I leave off? Yeah, verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Boy, that's important too. I will come to you. 
Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. So what do you think he's foretelling here in, this, in, in that statement? Verse 18 and 19. Not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to come to you in a little while. The world won't see me, but you, you see me. Because I live, you shall live also. What is he? What is he? I mean, that's, I think, a reference to faith. Like, and as far as seeing, I think that's probably not, like, because obviously because the world will not see you, meaning after he's gone, physically the world will no longer see him. But ye, my believers, ye see me because I live, ye shall live also. And that is probably in reference to Yeah, so in the context So in the context through the, the one so that's one interpretation that, that I think is fair. In the context of the conversation with the Holy Spirit, he could be saying that you will know me, you'll see me even though the world doesn't, this comforter that I give you, he'll reveal me to you. I think there's something else though that's a little bit more that, that's also that's also being spoken of here that's kinda like remember the timing when all this is taking place. Yeah, Bill. He could also mean after he rose from the dead, he came to the disciples. Right. Although the one assumed the dead, but I think the former is. You prefer the former interpretation. I actually think they're both in here, both the resurrection and the idea of the comforter, that both things are going to happen. He's got to die for the comforter to come. But then they're also, he's also going to reveal himself to them in his resurrected form. And that hope in the resurrection, the fact that Jesus lives, he says, you will also live. So I think you can see both, both of those things in here. Well, like you're saying comforter is someone who's next to you. Like some, it's another being there. Jesus has always been next to them. Right. He's been the physical comforter. But I will come to you, which is obviously future time. Right. So even though he's physically here now, he's going to be with them in a non-physical manner later. Correct. And that, so so now theologically speaking, I think like verse twenty kind of makes Travis' point. It's like that's essentially what it's saying is that at that day that he's with the Father, and he and me and I and you, like all these these three things are happening simultaneously. Right. I agree. So what what does that what is this pointing to theologically as well? So now we've got this you've got this like this reality for us as the believers, but there's a there's a doctrinal position that's under that's being substantiated here too, which is pretty important. This is trinitarian, right? This is this is trinitarian evidence. This is evidence for the oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because he says, I'm going to be with you. Why? Because I'm sending you the comforter. So in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of Jesus. And Jesus said previously, if you've seen me, you've also seen who? The Father. He said previously in this very conversation, you know, I've, I've been so long with you. Don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now he says, I'm going to leave and I'm going to give, I'm gonna, but I'm still going to be there because I'm giving you another comforter. And I'm going to be in him. So you see this oneness, Father, Son, and Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's important to know these passages because there's no like ideal 
Like you always get, like eventually at some point in your life, you're going to encounter somebody who denies the Trinity, who denies the deity of Jesus. I mean, obviously the most common that we run into are like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism. Um, but those are just the modern phenomenons. Throughout history, the deity of Christ has been attacked by groups over and over and over again. Trinity has been attacked, and it's had to be defended in about every single generation. And passages like this point to it, among others. Um, so these are important things to, to look at. So verse 21 now, he goes back to what he said at the beginning. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and look at this last statement, and will manifest myself to him. It's interesting. The closer we walk in obedience to Christ, the deeper our experience of him in our lives. And that's, you can learn that John would write about that in 1 John 2, when he talks about the fellowship we have with Father and Son. So it's possible to have a relationship, just like a human relationship, it's possible to have a relationship with someone, but not feel close to them. Anybody who's been married for more than six months knows how that works. It's possible to have a relationship with someone, but at times to not feel close to that person. And I think one of the principles we learn is, is that the deeper we, the, the more we obey, the more we love, the more we love, the more we obey, and the more we experience these things, the more we, are, we understand Jesus. We understand who he is. And so... Jesus says, I will manifest myself to him. Now, he picks up this conversation. Go down to verse number, verse number 22. Does somebody, somebody have a comment, question on that? Okay. Verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, the other Judas. Lord, how is it? How are you going to manifest yourself to us and not unto the world? So, again, because remember, up until now, it's all been tangible, like Travis said. I think that's a good point. It's all been very tangible. So much for the no camera thing. Um, so um, it's, all, it's all been very tangible, but now it's spiritual. So they're having a hard time in this, in this um, statement here, right? Because he's, they don't understand this. Well, how in the world are you going to reveal yourself to the world but not to us. So what would their mental process be? As they're not grasping it, how are they imagining this? They're imagining in terms of like, well, you're going to like be hidden somewhere and like we're going to have these secret meetings or something. Like they can't, like I don't know that's what they're thinking, but that's the, the, that's the framework that they're in. How can you reveal yourself? They're not getting the fact that it's going to be an internal witness. It's going to be an internal manifestation. And Jesus answers in verse 23, and he says, If a man love me, he'll keep my words. My Father will love him, and we will come unto him. Boy, there's more Trinitarian evidence here, right? So it's not just Jesus who is in the Holy Spirit. Who else is in the Holy Spirit? The Father. We. So we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So he's saying this manifestation is going to happen through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with you, but now the Holy Spirit is going to be in you. The Father and I are going to come, and we are going to be in you through the Holy Spirit. 
And then verse number 24, He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, yet, uh, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, I believe that what you see in verse number 26 is a specific promise to the apostles. You see, the apostles are given the responsibility of establishing the church. In fact, the reason that we accept the New Testament as the Word of God is because it was given to us by the authority of whom? The apostles. It's given to us by the authority of the apostles. So it would be the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the Holy Spirit guides all of us into truth. Yet, I believe that part of what is being spoken of here is a specific, is a specific gift to these apostles that you are going to be the ones that lay the foundation of the New Testament church. And the Holy Spirit is going to remind you of what I've said. In fact, that's how we got the New Testament. That's how we got the Gospels. Because the Holy Spirit reminded them of the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus, which they wrote down and recorded. And now we have in the historical record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, um, that's important, that gift of the Holy Spirit. He'll bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, in another thing we need to, there's another theological point from this, and we try to do this on Wednesday nights. We try to bring out a little bit more, uh, a little bit more doctrinal things and, than, than we do on Sunday morning. So, one thing I want to point out here, too, is there's a, not only are there errors about Jesus and his deity when it comes to the Trinity, but there are also errors about the Holy Spirit, when it comes to the Trinity. So for instance, one, one error that has been promulgated is that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but he is a force, or it is a force. Well, one of the problems with that would be, did you see the personal pronoun with which the Holy Spirit is referred to all throughout? The Holy Spirit is not referred to as an it, but the Holy Spirit is referred to as a, as a he. Now, there's another, uh, there's another error that is called, um, it's the modalism. If you like to study these things, it's called modalism. And that's been the historic view that there are not three persons, that, that the, they're just three different modes of God, that the Father is a mode, the Spirit is a mode, the Son is a mode. In fact, you can find there's a whole denomination called oneness Pentecostalism, or in it's coming back up as, it's not traditional Pentecostalism, it's, a, it's an offshoot, a heretical group, oneness Pentecostalism, or oneness theology, that there is not Father, Son, and Spirit, there's just, um, they're not three individuals, it's just they have different modes. Now, you could be reading this passage, and you could be like, well, if I read this passage, that seems kind of insane, like it doesn't even make any sense, because there's obviously three distinct, yeah, that's why I'm pointing out that this passage really debunks that whole idea. So again, not something you're going to run into all the time, probably not something that's going to change the way that you live tomorrow, but if you're a student of the Word of God, it's a good thing to kind of tuck away in your bank of knowledge and in your theological understanding. 
that this is a, a clear passage discussing the three unique identities of Father, Son, and Spirit, yet also pointing to their equality. Okay? I can tell you're all riveted by that right there, but that's okay. Just put that down in your, in your bank of notes somewhere. Um, okay, let's move on. Verse number next. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. Now that's interesting. Any, anybody can tell me what's the Hebrew word for peace? What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Shalom. This would have been the, a classic farewell. When you said farewell to somebody, you would say shalom and you would leave. And in many ways, Jesus is giving his farewell address to them now, isn't he? He's giving them a farewell before the cross. But, and he says, peace, shalom, I, get, I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We saw that on Sunday in verse number one. Let not your heart be troubled. He says it again in verse 27. Let not your heart be troubled. Of course, troubling things are about to happen. Verse number 28. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now, I'm going to come back to that, so don't worry. So mark that. We are going to deal with that. Verse 29. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. He's saying, I'm giving you this information in advance. In other words, I told you, I told you that I was going to go, but you don't really believe this is a good thing. Jesus is saying, if you love me like you say you love me, you would understand this. And you're going to in the future. Like this is, this is the, the patience of Jesus with the disciples. The disciples are like, Jesus, we love you. But Jesus knows what are they all about to do. In just a few hours, he's going to be in trouble. And what are they going to do? They're going to, they're going to run away. They're going to abandon the one that they love. I think what's happening here is Jesus is saying, if you love me, you would rejoice about all of this. The point is, they don't love Jesus. They think they do, but they don't. But Jesus knows there is a day coming when what? They are going to love him. And isn't it amazing that Jesus loves them now, though they still don't love him? Again, later on, after he's resurrected, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He's teaching them here at the end about true love for him. Right now, they think they love Jesus, but they don't. But Jesus is okay with that. They're still his children. And, and it's going to be that, that, yeah, Frank, go ahead. I don't understand. You just don't get it. Yeah. Right. And so Jesus' love and mercy extends to those who cannot love him adequately. None of us can love God adequately, right? And, but he still invites us into deeper relationship, into deeper love with him. And we ought to be really grateful for that. 
I mean, Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. And I don't know if you know the scene, but there's this scene as Jesus is being led from one of the courtrooms. And who does he look at? Who, they, they just catch eyes for just a glance. It's Peter. He just, he, it's, it's recorded in the Gospels that he saw him. They looked at each other. And of course, Peter, he knows what he's done. He's denied the Lord. And after Jesus is resurrected, when the women, when, when the, 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 there's the first appearance, he says, the, the, the message is given, I forget the exact, if it was the angels that said it or if Jesus said it. I thought it was Jesus who said it. Who said, go tell my disciples and who? And Peter that I'm risen. Like, there's just this love for undeserving disciples. And so he says, you don't love me. If you did love me, you'd rejoice. But when the time comes, in verse 29, you'll believe, and that's why I'm telling you. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. That's a cool passage right there. That's difficult to translate. Um, I'm pretty sure what you have in your King James Version there is a very literal translation, which allows for some ambiguity. Most people translate that, he has no power over me. He has... Um, and I think that that's probably what this, what the meaning here. He has nothing in me. He has no, or one translation is he has no hold over me. Like I'm going to be, because they're going to see the prince of the world, Satan, and they're going to see Jesus crucified, but he wants them to know. And he would, he'll say this later on too, that he's also said that no man can take my life from me. I have to what? I have to lay it down. And so the prince of darkness, the prince of the world is coming. I'm not going to be able to talk much more. Literally, in, in, in a few minutes, we're going to Gethsemane. I'm going to pray. The soldiers are going to come. There's not much. I don't have much more I can say to you because the prince of the world is coming. But I want you to know he's, he, can't, he can't hold on to me. Yeah. Just a letter. Just one letter. Yeah. He's got nothing on me. There's no hold there. There's no, no control over me. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. And then he's going to talk to them about the vine and the branches. It would almost seem as if the, the vine and the branch discussion is while they're walking somewhere, which is very possible. When he says, arise, let us go hence, could be they're heading to the Mount of Olives right now. Or he's got one more thing to say and then they go. But we'll talk about that more in, in the future. What I do want to do, though, before we wrap up tonight, is I do want to go back because this is another important statement. Remember, I've been giving a, kind of, obviously there have been multiple themes to this talk tonight, but one of the things that we keep coming back to is the oneness, right, between Father, Son, and Spirit, the deity of Christ, all of that. Well, obviously, at face value, verse 28 Verse 28 seems to pose a problem for our Trinitarian views at, at just surface glance. It's not really a problem, but someone who's not a careful student of the word would look at verse number 28 and would see a problem there. And what would that, what would that be? Go ahead and look at verse 28, particularly toward the end. Yeah, Frank. The Father is greater than I. What was that? It says the Father is greater than I. So to play the devil's advocate, what would the opponent say about that? That they're not 
Yeah, that, that maybe they're not one, or at least they're not equal, right? So how would you handle that? Before I give you some, some info, obviously we've already had some verses that talk about their oneness, but Jesus does say the Father is greater. So I got a couple of hands up. Let's start with Jim, and then we'll go to Mike. Well, that's what it's saying here, that the Father is greater. So if he's saying that, how can, how can the Father be, I'm just giving you a hard time, right? How can the Father be greater, but that they're equal? I don't understand this. Right? Mike? It's not that he's physically or like greater than everybody. Jesus submits to the Father as well. Okay. All right. So, well, that's, that's a great interpretation. But... Who says? Like, like that's a great theory, Mike. I'm just giving you time, right? Because yeah. you're right, actually. You're correct. But, like, great thought, but where does it say that? You have to read the entire New Testament. Yeah. It's a theme. It is a theme. And my Father's will is greater than mine. So let me give you... It is a constant theme. So, are there any themes that point to the greatness of Jesus, though? Bill. Well, I was addressing the fourth question. Jesus became obedient. Did he, he put himself under subjection to the Father, under by the Father's authority when he became man? But it also says, I and my Father are one. It's, it's in common, not robbery, be equal with God. Yep. Perfect. So I'm going to go to those two. You quoted two passages that are that are very important in this discussion, and we're going to look at them as we finish up. I'm, I'm glad you because those are the two that are key here. Because the theme of submission of the Son is is definitely throughout the New Testament. But what about is there any in is there any submission of the Father? Is there any supremacy of the Son that's ever pointed to either? So this is kind of interesting. What are you going to say? That's a good point. That's good. What were you going to say, Jim? Well, you say that the Bible says that he, when he returns, that even Jesus doesn't know the hour. Well, that, and that's another, yeah, that's another point of the subordination of the Son. So let, let me just recap it this way. When Jesus is speaking as a, in his human condition in his humanity the the son over and over reveals himself as being subordinate to the father so the question is this is that subordination eternal is there an eternal subordination of the son to the father so for sake of time i'll just 
put it this way. Some people would say yes, but that that's just subordination in role, not in essence and who they are. And, and they still believe in the full deity of Jesus, but they would say yes, in some way, the Son is still, it was eternally submissive to the Father. I think that's not correct, though. I think the correct way to view it is that Jesus subjected himself to humanity, and for temporarily, he subordinated himself to the Father. You look like you want to say something, Bill, or no? You're good? Okay. So I would view it as a temporary subordination, and I'll give you two passages why that is. One, you just have to turn a couple of pages. Go to John 17. John 17, 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That there was a greater glory that Jesus had before he subordinated himself to humanity. Now, he doesn't explicitly describe it, but he does indicate in this passage that Jesus in his... It, it, it's not that he gave up any of his deity, but he gave up, he seemed to have surrendered, temporarily surrendered, and this is where you get into real theological, you've got to be really careful. So I'm going to try not to commit heresy here. But Jesus temporarily sets aside some of his glory or surrenders some of his glory, some of his glory only to, in his resurrection, pick it back up. So another passage that describes it is Philippians chapter 2. And, and Bill quoted both these passages. Philippians chapter 2, it says this. Um, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's a difficult passage to translate in the Greek too. It's, it can, this whole idea, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, or it could be translated that this equality that he had with God, he, he didn't hold on to it. He, 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 was, he didn't consider it something he had to grasp. So you see that. But the point here is there's this equality with God. But now in verse 7, he makes himself of no reputation and he takes upon himself the form of a servant. And he's made in the likeness of men. This is the willful this is the willful subordination of the son to take, a, to take, even though he's got full equality with God, that's not his primary concern. His primary concern is saving mankind. He does that by subordinating himself. Now watch what happens next though, okay? See hands going up. Verse number eight. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now look at verse nine. Wherefore God also hath what? highly exalted him, 
and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. Of things in heaven, of things in earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a shared glory in eternity. So this, what Jesus says, the Father is greater than me, he said, you should be glad, because this is what he's saying. The Father's greater than me, but then the Father's going to glorify me. Okay, there were some hands up, but maybe we... Okay, yes, Teresa. I'm not under, I don't disagree with what you said, but I'm not understanding the question, what you're asking. Kind of what I was asking before about Right. Is it just because that was... Oh, right, right, yes. So, okay, I think I understand. Yes, he had to be, he had to subordinate himself in order to take upon the punishment for our sins. That's kind of what you're saying, I think, right? Yeah, I would agree, I would agree with that. In order to receive the wrath... He humbled himself. Yeah. Um, he also intercedes for us, right? He intercedes for us. So, the, he wouldn't be able to do that if he wasn't at least evil. If he hadn't subordinated himself. Right. He, well, it says that he was tempted, like in all points like this, we are yet without sin. But, like, like now he intercedes for us, and so, like, the Father wouldn't listen to him if he wasn't. Oh, if it wasn't equal. Right. He doesn't intercede from a position of subordination. He intercedes from a position of equality. I think that's... Yeah, I'd have to think about that more, but I think that's correct. Bill, what were you going to say? Well, just to emphasize the importance, the significance of glorification, I believe it's Isaiah where it says, Jehovah God, is, God the Father is talking and says, I will not share my glory with another. Exactly. That's very important. If you didn't hear what Bill said, there's a, there's a reference in Isaiah. The Father, God the Father says, I am, does he use the word Yahweh, Jehovah? I, I, I am the Lord and my glory I will not share with another. Yet he shares it with the Son because they are co-equal. So, we've run out of time. But again, what I try to do with these, especially on Wednesdays, is like to, there's, to show you the 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 theological truths that are behind these passages, but then also there's a devotional application for us. So don't lose either of those, right? We know Jesus is revealing who he is and his relationship with the, with the Father and with the Spirit, but then he tells us, I'm giving you the Spirit. He's not just going to be with you, he's going to be in you. You're going to experience me personally. And when we experience the Holy Spirit right now, we have both Father, Son, and Spirit, not just with us, but in us. And so that's something to meditate on, something to contemplate a little bit deeper, let God speak to your heart about it. All right, great discussion. Thanks, uh, thanks for participating. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll make time for prayer.
Lord, we do love you and thank you that we've had this time to look at your word tonight. I pray that you'd help all of us to just to hunger to understand the word and then also, Lord, to, to obey you and know you more personally and more intimately, Lord. I thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us. Please bless the rest of this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.